Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast with me, your host, Ahmed Hassan. And in celebration of the Great Dynamics Intelligence Tradecraft Week, we're going to do a special edition. So this week, I thought we would round up some of the tools our podcast guests have recommended and use in the real world. We'll be covering social media tools, advanced search techniques, monitoring services, AI, and more. First up is Ocean veteran Benjamin Strick. He is the Director of Investigation Center for Information Resilience, a contributor at Bellingcat, has previously worked as an investigator for BBC Africa Eye. Here's what he has to say. I would love to hear any tools that you're looking at and that you're using that, that you can't believe that are real. Sometimes I have that. <laughs> I think I've been getting more into, you know, I'll, I'll steer away from complex tools and, and, and corporate tools because I think there is such power in getting back in the basics, you know, that there's, there's really cool tools out there like, uh, you know, and, and ones that might be phased out one day. I remember the great Facebook collapse where we had group, uh, tools like Stalk Scan or, or things like that, where you could see basically through library searches, every photo that someone was indexed in. Sadly, that got kicked out the window in 2019. We had Who Posted What, which is a great one. So Who Posted What is a, is a really good tool for Facebook to search for a specific term on a specific day. There's a lot of creativity around that, but I think just going back to basics and, and the best hacker tool of them all being Google, that Google search bar is, is an incredible beast when you plug certain binary searches in there with certain what they call Google dorks or Google hacks, but the kind of searches that you can do in there can reveal passwords can reveal documents about different governments around the world that shouldn't be public but are, that can find out such information, whether it be Russian leaks, what Wagner is up to, and all that sort of content, right from Google's search bar. The same thing you type in when you're looking for a, a 30-day fitness plan or where your nearest cafe is. So I would say that one, and I think the other best hacker tool of them all is the rights, right-click and inspect to see the source code of a page. The amount of information that is on different websites that's not naked to the visible eye unless you right-click and inspect is such a, uh, such a, a cool tool. So that, that right-click on, on any, any browser and view page source and inspect can open up such amazing content to the point where uh, I, I remember one one investigator or, or, or titled hacker that did that same tool and was able to enter the flight booking account of the Australian Prime Minister and find out his private details, change the booking this. if he wanted to, <laughs> all from a right click and view page source. And it's like getting back into the simple tools, I think, is a strong point. And, and I'd probably say that to any junior investigator, right? Anyone beginning in the field. Don't try and do the massive, complex, mad things that everyone's doing with huge data visualizations and big team projects that are probably only possible with, with a lot of funding, grant funding or corporate funding. But master the basics because unlike the tools that I've spoken about that, that have been wiped out by uh, you know Facebook access restrictions and things like that, those few page source tools or... or, or or Google search bar tools, those tools will be around forever. And, and, and that's the kind of stuff that you can build off of 
with, uh, with big investigations. Next, we have Jordan Bonath. Jordan is a senior threat intelligence analyst at Lockheed Martin. Him and his team specialize in OSINT uh, open source intelligence and SOCMINT, which is social media intelligence, to identify key threats to his organization by sifting through vast quantities of information. What tools do you like? What tools you don't like? Can you go a little bit into that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think this is kind of like every OSINT analyst's kind of favorite thing in a way, like, you know, how guys like to talk about sports and, and cars <laughs> and, and, you know, if you're in the military, you talk about guns. I think OSINT analysts like to talk about tools a lot, which I'm all for it. I think tools are awesome. I don't think they're at the end all be all what it means to be an OSINT analyst, but yeah, I, I could talk about tools all day long. Go ahead. Yeah, right. Uh, something on a previous podcast you had, it might have been maybe one or two podcasts ago, you're talking to a guest and forgive me, I can't remember his name, but uh, he mentioned one of his favorite tools was just using Google Dorks. And I cannot agree. I cannot agree anymore ben, with that. Yeah. yeah. Benjamin String. Yeah. I, when he said that, I, it felt like he was speaking to me because mm-hmm. I think Google Dorks are looked over often because yeah. they're pretty simple. They're not you know that complex. But I will say, if you were to look at the tools I use throughout the day, Google Dorks is definitely the most common one. I mean, so much so that I use it in my personal life when I'm looking up things on Google and I know I need to find a specific file type for something, or I need to look for a specific phrase, I'll use, I'll use a Google dork to do it. So Google dorks all day long. I think the amount of information that Google has been able to capture and using something as simple as a Google dork to really refine the query that you want to find the information that you need, I think is amazing. And so I think any OSIN analyst who you know is worth their salt would, would really be wise to uh, leverage Google Dorks. And once again, I know it's a kind of an elementary tool for OSINT analysts to use, but it's something I use every single day. And so, yeah, that's kind of the number one tool that I definitely use is Google Dorks. Another tool I use, it, it's funny, it's not necessarily a tool, it's more of a library of tools. So it was actually created by, I think his name is Michael Hoffman from the OSINT Curious Project, um, one yep. of the founders from there. He, he created what's called the Smart Tool, which is essentially an aggregation library of a bunch of start me pages that use OSINT tools. So if anyone listening doesn't know what a start me page is, it's pretty much a big web page that holds links uh, of whatever you would like. It could be recipes, it could be OSINT tools, it could be whatever you want, but it's essentially a big library of links. And there's multiple start me pages. I mean, there's dozens, if not potentially hundreds of start me pages that are dedicated to OSINT tools. And so he created one tool that aggregates all of these OSINT start me pages into one tool, into one library. And so if there's ever you know a need for me to find a tool or some type of function that I just currently don't have, that I don't have bookmarked, I'll go to his kind of smart tool and I'll look it up. So if I need some type of collection tool for Instagram or TikTok or something like that, I'll go to his smart me page or his smart tool and I'll type in TikTok, I'll type in Instagram and it pulls up all of the Instagram or TikTok tools that are located in all of these Start Me pages. And so that is a very easy way to find the tools that I need. So it's kind of a tool of tools, if you will. A Swiss army knife. Yeah, that's a, real, that's a really good way to think about it. You know, Because I know for me, when I first got into OSINT, and I think a lot of people would probably share this experience, there's a litany of tools out there and you just don't know what to use for kind of mm-hmm. what purpose and stuff like that. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of like information overload with the tools. And having one source to go to to find, you know, a tool I might need, it 
it makes my job a lot easier and allows me to focus more on my work and less on trying to find tools that aid me in my work. So yeah, there's that one. And then I had two more I actually made note of before I came on. So I mentioned Twitter a lot. Uh, so my team, we love Twitter just because of how many people on there and how much data is there. This shouldn't come to any surprise for anyone who's been in the OSINT sphere for a while. TweetBeaver is probably my second go-to tool. Just with the amount of functionality it provides from the Twitter data, being able to see you know, very quickly relationships between accounts or mentions of certain keywords by specific accounts. Those are just a few examples that we use it for. Now, the downside that TweetBeaver is, and I hope this doesn't happen, with the Twitter API going to a paid model, TweetBeaver tweeted... Uh, a week ago, a few weeks ago, that they were going to shut the tool down. I hope that doesn't happen. I hope you know they've figured out a way to either get the data through another means that isn't through the API, or they pay for the API. And I'll be honest, I'll pay for TweetBeaver if they need a yearly license so I can continue to use it. So TweetBeaver is definitely a huge tool we use. And then another tool that I don't really think is necessarily an open source intelligence tool, it's more of kind of a workflow aid, is... If this, then that, or IFTTT. We use it for kind of helps with some automation things. An, an example you can use for if this, then that, uh, it's kind of describing the name. You set up conditions for different web applications to perform different actions. So it's, it's derived in the name. If something occurs on a web application, then do this, essentially. So a common use case, you could use it for Telegram or Twitter. You could say, you know, if a specific user tweets, send me an email. That's a very simple kind of workflow you can use for if this, then that. And that kind of can be used for teams who maybe don't have a huge budget for automation tools, but they need some level of automation because they're what they're doing is scaling bigger than what they can do manually. And so IFTTT can be a, a huge tool you can leverage that can aid in kind of your automation. Um, and the best thing is it's free. So that, that's another kind of huge tool that we use. Next, Garrett Westwood, who is now the head of global intelligence at Sibeline. He recommends some of the tools and services he used while working at AstraZeneca Global Security Intelligence Division. What tools do you guys use? And I think for a lot of analysts, that's, that's maybe good to know. So on the global risk side, I can't really tell you exactly what vendors we use because it's contractual things, but you'll find a lot of in-house teams have suppliers that provide kind of global risk intelligence to varying degrees. They might also supply personnel. They might also supply kind of mitigation advice. There, there are a plethora of companies out there and obviously a Obviously, I'm not, I'm not really clear to say exactly what ones we use. And then, of course, there's kind of the, 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 the open sources. So BBC monitoring, which, you know, isn't completely free to everyone, but you, you there are ways to get an account. And in the UK, we have the, the, the likes of Rusi. We find ACLED really good for the, the conflict, the conflict kind of stuff. We also find Crisis Watch and Crisis 24, both really good resources, both of which, you know, you can pay for to get enhanced subscriptions, but you, they can be offered for free as well. On the kind of, kind of global risk, country risk side of it, you know, the, the foreign office, UK foreign office travel advice, the OSAC, which is kind of the US equivalent in the CIA World Factbook, again, all free all out there to use. The UN also have some really good data that, that you can use, you know, and, and they have various data feeds in various agencies as well. But the UN, UNODC in particular, have really good, has really good, you know, security, security information lately as well. 
with Ukraine have been looking at for the, the Institute for the Study of War, which is really good. And the Long War Journal, I use that quite a lot in Afghanistan. So that's kind of just a smattering of, I'd say, operational and strategic vendors and resources, none of which I'm endorsing, but all of which are available. We also then have kind of more tactical capabilities. Our Global Security Operations Center has capabilities that can kind of pinpoint social media posts and incidents occurring on a map and then communicate those out. I think the big players are so few and far between. There's so many folks that are trying to do it. I'd be probably disadvantaging one to mention the other, but there are there are loads out there, you know, that, 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 that vary in cost, vary in quality. And I'd say on that side of it, the global risk side of it, a fused approach is best because there isn't one vendor that does absolutely everything. That's why many exist. That's, that's precisely why many exist, because not one does absolutely everything, whether you're talking tactical or operational and strategic. So on the open source intelligence kind of investigation side of it, we use link analysis software. There's lots of link analysis software out there. There's Multigo, which is a great open source tool that you can actually kind of attach several different data feeds into Multigo via an API platform. So we use a link analysis software that, that also has open source data feeds behind it. But then we use kind of traditional open source intelligence, right? So we have you know, several start me pages that we've managed to pick up from training courses and, and LinkedIn posts and, and Twitter posts. The tools for that change all of the time. So I'd say there are lots of tools that they get on, get on social media, because if I say a tool, it could, that tool could be defunct by tomorrow when this podcast go out or next, next week when this podcast is published. So I would definitely say follow some also into groups on LinkedIn and Twitter, and you'll get an idea of some tools to use. And, and if, if you're lucky, you might get a start me page that you can use. I definitely think, again, on that side of it, there's no silver bullets. Our link analysis software is excellent, but we often have to accompany it with traditional open source browser-based open source intelligence. And there are, you know, several vendors then out there that will kind of do a bit of both, um, that can curate and scrape things like the dark web, you know, and, and that can look at social media across the piece, do the translation, categorize it into what whichever Boolean strings you want. There are loads of them out there. And again, any other vendors that I've encountered not mentioned there, I'll probably cease to be on their Christmas card list. But honestly, there are so many. But those are the sorts of things that we use and other multinationals use to get curated insight that they can then further kind of wrap up for their internal stakeholders. Paul Shara is our next guest with some recommendations on where to learn about more technical aspects of AI and machine learning. Paul is a current vice president and director of studies at Center for New American Security. He has previously worked in the office of the Secretary of Defense and he's an ex-US Army Ranger. If somebody's interested in, in AI, in, in machine learning, maybe not from a scientific perspective, but to understand it a little bit better, outside of your, your great books, Army of None and, and uh, Full Battlegrounds, what can you recommend? I think it's really important for any technology area, whether it's like cybersecurity or AI, to be able to get into the technology and understand it. Because it's, I, you know, I am in so many conversations with people where it's very surface level and you can tell that people are talking about the idea of AI, but not the technology itself. And you hear people talk about it and I'm like, that's not, 
that's not how it works. That's not real. Like it's just you're talking about something else, not what people are actually doing in labs. So I'd say it's really important to dig into the tech. Couple resources for doing so. One, there's an AI research group that studies trends in AI called Epoch. It's spelled like Epic E P O C H. They do amazing work looking at trends in data and computing power and algorithmic progress. Progress, really valuable sort of quantitative analysis. It's great for helping to understand where this is going. If you want to dig deep into kind of the cutting edge of AI technology, I would look at the AI research group Anthropic. It's an AI startup spun out of OpenAI. They're doing tremendous work in large language models. They publish their research papers on their website to try to understand what's going on. If you're looking at something like ChatGPT, you're like, this is weird. What is going on? That's you. I mean, the popular media stuff is fine, but if you want to get below the surface and, and look at what's actually happening, I would say go to Anthropic's website and look at their sources. And then there's just some absolutely great emails that you could send them for. Like in many fields, Jack Clark's email newsletter, Import AI, is fabulous. It's a great roll-up of what's going on in the world of AI. And it's a great starting point. But I would encourage readers to also dig deeper on these papers. Go to th- The great thing about the AI research community is that almost all of the papers are open access. They're published online, on archives, mm-hmm. um, a publicly available website where there's no paywall. They're not behind paywall scientific journals. And so go to the technical papers, read them. You know, If you're a policy person and you don't understand the math, that's fine. You can skip the equations, but read the abstract and the introductions and the discussion and um, start wading into the deep end of the pool because you know understanding the technical aspects are really critically important. And the technology is moving forward uh, so quickly and it's going to have transformative effects on society. I think the more people that can understand where this is taking us and help us prepare all the better. Now for a different kind of tool, languages. This next clip is myself and Skip Skiphorst of iIntelligence discussing learning techniques and services. Skip teaches OSINT courses on researching within the Arabic, Chinese, and now Russian parts of internet. You asked me in the beginning of the podcast of any systems. So for me, my system is fairly straightforward, but I will go into that after you answer. Do you have any like systems, tricks, tips on how to pick up a new language? I do actually. I've been thinking about uh, posting something on techniques, but techniques have to match someone. Of course, Uh if you're in a uh, a, a university system, you're going to be given the books you need. But if you don't have that, or if you don't have the luxury to, to study because you're working, there are other ways. But they have to match a bit how you learn. For me, what works best is making an own dictionary and then every new word and every uh, new structure I learn, make an example of a sentence and just repeat, repeat. The best way is is really immersion. And like I said um, before, I mean, uh, four years of study is, is a long investment at university. What you also can do is I think the best way to study a language or just to learn the language is to immerse yourself in a language. I know tons of people that have studies that have worked and studied in China for two, three, four years and just can barely get by in Chinese because they've just stuck to speaking to Italians and Spanish people and French people using English. Yeah. Right. My progress really kicked off 
when I was in China and I didn't go, except you know, doing, doing workouts with my fellow Dutch students when I was there, I just focused on speaking as much as possible with the local people, uh, especially not with English speaking people and just sticking to that language. Immersion is the best, right? So whether it's Arabic or Chinese or, or Russian or Spanish or whatever there is, in some instances, you're better off just going somewhere and invest some time, two, three, four months, whatever it is, and just immerse yourself. Buy your bus tickets, buy your food or noodles, ideally noodles, of course, but uh, <laughs> just immerse yourself, stay stay away from English-speaking people, and that's uh, that works the best. And there's, you know, if you can't, and nowadays, of course, we can travel so much more and restrictions are being lifted. There's so many applications and websites and tools out there that can help us study. Uh, I Everybody's been talking about Duolingo. I never used it, but I, I, I dwelled into it a few weeks ago for Russian. It's, it's kind of funny. Uh, for me, the ones I like is a Rosetta Stone, which recognizes your voice and tells you, hey, you got to change this or you got to change that or say it again. Uh, but I would say definitely the best there is is to go to places and speak with people. I mean, if you can't travel because you're bound to local work, then find a place where they speak that language, right? If you're learning Arabic, find a place where uh, where people drink tea and spend some time there. Order some food in Arabic, order your coffee in Arabic. If you find a, whatever language there is, try and find a a local a local spot where you can, where people uh, uh, speak in that language. The, I think the most difficult tool there is to get is motivation and discipline, but that's with everything, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just sticking with it. It's also good to, if you have a reason to stick with it, right? If it's... I agree. Right. If it's for, like, if you want to work somewhere or you want to travel somewhere, you want to pick up a language, those are motivations, right? To to learn it and... Precisely. Right. So for me, it's, it's, it's funny, but my partner is Swedish. Uh, or Swedish speaking, let's say that. And for the longest time, I was, I've, I've been told, you know, you need to learn the language and speaking Dutch and German, Swedish is not that big difference, right? However, um, mm-hmm. not, I realized for myself that the motivation is, is that I want to be able to speak with her family that doesn't really speak English that well. So I instruct mm-hmm. them not to speak English with me. So I just have to, I have to adapt and, um, uh, I'm, I'm feeling it this year, this year, I'm gonna, I'm gonna grasp it and, uh, and be able to have awesome full conversations and it's not for work or anything, but it's because, you know, I want to be able to speak mm-hmm. to my family, but on, on your, t- on your tip on immersion, I 100% agree with that. It's the, it's the biggest one. I, I don't think that there is anything better than that. And, but you're in a good position, Ahmed. Yeah, I mean, it, sorry to cut you off, but you're in a good position and a bad position. The good position because you're immersed in Sweden. Yeah, but the bad position is uh, um, Swedes are known to be the <laughs> some of the best English speakers yeah. of Europe, right? Well, they are. Yeah, they are. Uh, they 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 don't really like small talk, so it's 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 not like you're just gonna like start talking to somebody. But yeah, they they, they speak English really well. You know, similar to a lot of I'm, other. I'm gonna give you a tip, Ahmed. Go ahead. In, in, a, in, a, in a second, I'm going to give you a tip. Next time you go somewhere to buy something, uh, bread, tea, whatever it is you want to drink or eat or do or get done, 
just pretend you don't speak English. People are going to think that's impossible, but just pre pretend you can only speak Somali yeah. and Swedish. So obviously most Swedish people are not going to speak Somali, <laughs> so they're going to have to stick to yeah, their yeah, guns yeah. And, and go for Swedish, <laughs> man. Immerse yourself in the immersion. One. That's a good point. That's a good point. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember that. And videotape it. Yeah. <laughs> Sure, <laughs> share that on the on social media. No, but if I can give a tip on on immersion, so I started my Russian studies as you earlier talked about Chinese, because uh, since I was a teenager, I was always fascinated by Russia and mm -hmm. anything concerning Cold War. My father, when he was in his early twenties, at the time Somalia was a I think they call it scientific communism country. It was still a religious country, but they used mainly like socialist uh, government structures. So they were allied with, um, mm -hmm. with the Soviet Union at the time. So my father was sent to Russia for training, where he had training actually with KGB. Oh, interesting. Because he, he was in military intelligence. No kidding. And uh, so told me stories and, and, and I was always interested in, in it's going to sound really silly, but I started really getting interested into it after I saw Rambo. In, in Afghanistan, right? <laughs> and uh, so I was like, what is this, okay. right? And I started like, I know it's silly, but that's how I got interested in, in, in Russian. And, and I always said to myself, you know, I'm going to learn it. But there was always another language that was more important to learn uh -huh. at the time, you know? So I have a friend who speaks Russian, Scott. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, listen, the way to learn a language, particularly Russian, is, as you said, immersion. Uh -huh. And he studied a while back, years ago, in Minsk, in Belarus. And so, so he, he was able to pick up the language pretty, pretty fast. And he gave me a couple of other tips that didn't really work for me. But I would say, as for like apps, people are interested in that. Like, I think Bubble mm -hmm. is the best one uh, right. that I have tried. It's, it's really good. Okay. Um, so I can say that one. And I know normally we give the tips at the end of the podcast, but you know, now we're on it. Uh, oh, we do, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fine. But I like for immersion for me, for Russian, I think people know Fiverr, which is like a, uh, a website where you marketplace, where you can like find experts to design your website or, you know, to build an app for you okay. or something like that. Uh, it's like Upwork and Fiverr. Uh, so what I did was. Um, used a bit of OSINT and his tip was find people that can teach you and you can speak with them in Russia. So I went on, on Fiverr and I found seven or six teachers. And for some reason, most of the teachers are, are women, barely any men teaching Russian. So uh -huh. just for people to know that that's kind of like normal. And mm -hmm. so I found teachers most of them, I didn't really have a click with, uh, and there was one teacher and she was from Ukraine, uh, but her mother was Russian and mm -hmm. she spoke Ukrainian and Russian. And this is so pre the invasion, well, pre the second invasion, they were invaded right. in 2014, uh, mm -hmm. beginning of last year. So what I did was I had two lessons a week, one like prep and one speaking and yeah, I, that's how I started. And then she would start the conversation with, Hey, how are you? How was your day? What did you do in Russian? 
That's the best. Right. And exactly. it was not that expensive. So yeah, that's probably the best tip I can give people to do. You can do it for Arabic, you can do it for Chinese, you can do it for Japanese, this, for any language. I mean, I will remember somebody uh, was learning like uh, Hausa, like an African language speaking Central Africa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they were learning Hausa on fire or something, but they found somebody to teach them. And yeah, and, and that's not even a written language, I think. Uh-huh. Um, I think that's just a spoken language, but yeah. Pe- people often go into a language with the goal of thinking, hey, I want to be fluent in that. That That's not going to happen. But if you're into, you know, human relations or having, being able to uh, make a connection with someone, even just showing a person or from a total different continent, country, culture, religion, that you made the effort to get it a bit, to, to, to try and get it, that, that's going to help you so much. I, I, uh, as a silly example, I can give you one we from uh, Iraq, my time there, is that when some patrols went to a village, they would come back. When using an inter- interpreter, they would go there go with an interpreter, come back and say, uh, well, there wasn't so much to report, right? And I'd go there and then I was asked, well, okay, well, you want to do this with or without interpreter? I said, no, I'll do it without, right? I'll just just uh, put me into it. Uh, let me get, let me get, let me get, get my Arabic on. Went to the same village a few weeks or months after I forgot. And then, you know, just by by breaking the ice by by speaking, just not only speaking but just showing you know respect for the culture and the language, and just having them or showing them that you kind of uh, make an effort to to find the right words. Even if, even if you mess up your pronunciation, even if you mess up the grammar, absolutely. Uh, that's that's going to resonate with people. Mm-hmm. I think, hey, he's doing an effort, yeah. and yeah, that that turned out pretty interesting. We got some very interesting information there were lots of uh lots of landmines around that village there was depleted uranium they said oh whatever you do in this village just don't go to that tank because it glows at night no it, what, what i meant is uh it, it was you know it, there, there was de- depleted uranium but these kind of things you don't if you if the the team that went or the group that went before i forgot who it was that they they just don't get that even if it's through an interpreter it's just it gets a bit uh how to say artificial with that filter of an interpreter yeah just by breaking the ice is is you you get so much already yeah absolutely i think with the interpreter also there are like certain like difficulty layers that most i think a lot of people don't understand like is that interpreter from there are they from the same clan or the same Mm -hmm. tribe right yeah oh definitely right these are things that people don't think about so if the interpreter speaks arabic in a certain accent right they're like, who is this guy, right? Absolutely. Or, or and so, so, and I, and I, you're hundred percent right in what you're saying because most people, when you make an effort uh-huh. in speaking their language, they, they glow. I mean, they start like they smile all of a sudden, like, oh wow, uh, they oh, open they up, open yeah, up, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And even like when I'm like traveling, yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when you're traveling, like I remember once in when, oh, yeah. when I was still living in London, uh, I was standing in line in uh-huh. in a cafe, right, and waiting uh, to get coffee. And then in front of me are two, two girls speaking to each other. And in the beginning, I thought they were speaking Russian, but this is before my Russian journey. Um, and I hear, and I listen really well, and I understood that they were speaking uh, like um, Serb, Croatian or, or Bosnian. 
And uh, some of my best friends growing up were from Bosnia. And so I've been there multiple times and, and I've, I know a couple of words right now, a lot, but as you, uh, as you have mm -hmm. friends and, you know, they, they teach you things and I know how to say like, Hey, hi, how are you doing? And, you know, simple stuff. Right. So I, I say only how you're doing. And they were so happy, right? Because they were like, Oh, somebody speaks our language. Oh, can we, <laughs> can we ask you like where, how to get to this and how to get to that? And I was like, Oh, I don't know if my. My language is that good, but, but it really helps. As you said, it breaks the ice. Uh, Which you break the ice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. No, definitely. Even if they speak English, if, if that's your first attempt, when they tell you where they're from. Yes. They're like, oh, wow. You know, you know, I'm, I'm happy that you did that. Yeah, that's definitely. And I think many people are kind of, um, uh, scared sometimes if, if you're, if you feel how to say assertive about mm -hmm. yourself, I think you say in English yeah. and you're not scared to make mistakes, not, not scared to make a fool out of yourself. Learning languages is a pretty safe environment yeah. unless you really offend someone, but then you really have to make a mistake with your translation. But it's yeah. pretty safe to, to try out your languages with people. Yeah. And usually people will be kind of patient and understand, mm -hmm. oh, he's trying to make an effort uh, and everything. But it really, uh, uh, it really helps a lot. Yeah. Um, even like, I think what you said there, like, even if you make a mistake and they laugh, it's good because they're like, all right, you said oh, that yeah. wrong, but... We know what you're trying to say, or you're making an effort, right? <laughs> and and then yes. some people will might yes. might find this like <laughs> crazy. But even though I grew up speaking Somali, my language skills were not that good until I went back there after like 20 years of civil war, and I went back there for the first time and I started speaking to people. They all laughed at me, like, "Where the hell did you learn the language?" And it's <laughs> it's a very it's a it's a culture where they where it's very normal, which is very similar to Dutch, where you're very direct and make fun of each other, mm -hmm. which is a term of endearment, right? Oh, really? Um, right. So I think also <laughs> that's why Dutch people have an easier time maybe speaking languages because you learn you learn to be very direct and very not scared to to speak and to express yourself. No, I think if if you if you expose if you're exposed until a certain age to foreign languages, even if you don't speak those languages, you're, I think it's until 10, like I said, I'm very horrible at numbers, but until 10 or 12, your brain is just a sponge. And if you're even exposed to other languages, even if you don't speak them fluently, mm -hmm. uh, your brain as a young kid is going to accept, okay, so there's different structures in languages. Yeah. A verb doesn't necessarily need to be there. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't need to be here. And then that helps you a lot at a later stage when you're 30, 20, or 40, yeah. like you and I, uh, learning la uh, Russian. I mean, you're, you're 25, right? No, no, no. 26. No, no, no. Uh, it, it makes it. I wish. <laughs> My knees aren't. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, it makes it, if your brain is already trained to accept that there's different grammatical structures, it makes mm -hmm. it a lot easier. That's why. And I think there's an over-reliance on, uh, on English for Dutch nationals when they go yeah. abroad, they just, oh, that's fine. I've got my international language passport, which is English. I can open every door. That's right. Yeah. That's correct. Um, but sometimes you're going to have to go a bit further than there and you don't need to be fluent. Uh, just a couple of words, sentences. It's just, it's just going to help you. And then it's always okay, right? To switch back to English yeah. afterwards. Yeah. That's all good. But you did the effort to just to show a few things saying, hey, hello, or yeah. thanks for inviting me to your home or whatever it is, right? Yeah, absolutely. Breaking the ice. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I will tell like a one, I think kind of like a funny size story. 
when I was mm-hmm. a kid, uh, I think I was four years old, I left Somalia and I ended up, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but I ended up living with my aunt and uncle in Iran for two years because the civil war started in Somalia and I was kind of like stuck there because my parents couldn't travel or not directly travel. Yeah. So I lived for two years in Iran uh, from ages, from age four to, or five to seven, something like that, before I got to the Netherlands. And I spoke Farsi, even though I went to an international school, um, I learned wow. to speak Farsi because I had friends there. And I've re- I don't think I've ever talked about this, but yeah, so I spoke Farsi and I came to the Netherlands and I remember speaking Farsi with other Iranian kids. And awesome. because I learned Dutch, uh, I went to school, I forgot completely the language, right? However, when I hear people speaking today, I can make out what they're saying just because of, you know, those two years as a kid that, that I've heard the language and I spoke it. And probably that should have been the first language for me to learn back again. But uh, yeah, I never got to it. But it's interesting, like how you can pick up languages as a kid and like forget as easily. Yeah. And, and reactivate the brain. I mean, if you, if you were to go to a place tomorrow or a cafe or for a few days in a row or go to Iran and, and, and be exposed to language, you'd pick it up within no time. I, mean, I grew up learning ja- uh, German as a secondary language. Mm-hmm. I wasn't very good at it usually, but when we did go to Germany, we usually go to Germany to do uh, uh, parachuting and everything for about two or three weeks in a row. You know, after a day or two, it gets activated mm-hmm. and then that, that section of the brain gets, gets, uh, is, is given a nudge and then, and then, yeah, you start, because it's been dormant for some time, it gets activated again. Yeah. Uh, it's actually pretty interesting how that works. Yeah, very. Thank you, everybody, for this short but to the point Tradecraft Week episode. Next week, we will go back to our normal podcast. I wanted to say thank you guys for the support. Please, if you're listening to the podcast, and particularly on YouTube, Apple, or Spotify, subscribe, like, and give us ratings, you know, whatever we deserve. If you can, five-star ratings and give us feedback. We would really appreciate that. One more thing, because of the Tradecraft Week, if you use, in all caps, Tradecraft in our subscription store, you can buy only annual subscriptions, by the way. You can get 30% off. So that's for the secret and the top secret, which gives you access to all the content that is behind the paywall or within our community. Thank you guys again so much and have a great weekend and talk to you guys soon. Bye.